Good morning. In today's headlines, the devastating wildfires on Maui have claimed at least 55 lives so far. Thousands are left without power or communication. Special counsel Jack Smith asks for a January trial date for former President Trump. Trump calls the move a political game and proposes his own terms. The Supreme Court halts the bankruptcy settlement of Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. It would have shielded company owners from lawsuits over the opioid epidemic. Representative James Comer says Biden family members may have their day in court as Republicans plan to subpoena them eventually. A surge in crime in a northern California city is causing many to consider leaving the Golden State. We hear from an Oakland City Councilman. Military and contract working dogs prove themselves in combat. Now a nonprofit called Mission Canine Rescue helps connect retired dogs with their former handlers and other adopters. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning from me also. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Friday, August 11th. And Evelyn, Governor Josh Green says a thousand people are still missing in Hawaii. Right. He says they're not presumed dead, but communications are down as we just heard, so um, their safety is unclear. Yes, and with radio and phone signal out, the governor says they're going to try to get their officers satellite phones. And we're going to give you the latest update on this tragic situation. The wildfires that struck the Hawaiian island of Maui have claimed 55 lives so far, and the death toll is still rising. Authorities say 80% of the fire in Lahaina is under control and added that none of the three ongoing fires have reached 100% containment. Over 10,000 people are without power and communication. The cost from the disaster is now into the billions. Search and rescue teams from California and Washington state have been deployed to assist first responders. Officials in Hawaii have declared a freeze on prices for all goods on Maui, effective until August 31st. That covers crucial products like food, water, ice, gasoline, cooking fuel, and medical supplies. Consumers are instructed to notify authorities if, of any price hikes. Entities Cost Jimenez gives us an update on the extent of the damage and the government's response. The fire has been described as the largest natural disaster of this generation. Aerial photos show the extent of the damage in Lahaina. Images emerging from the disaster paint a grim and gloomy picture, as the town appears as if it was hit by bombs. Flames roared throughout the night, forcing adults and children to dive into the ocean for safety. This resident lost his home and his car to the flames. I tried to warn a lot, as many people as I could. We tried. <sighs> there was a lot of people, like, I think it's just like, so chaotic that nobody knew there was no phone connections and as much as I was trying to save and, and, and let people know there was no options. This resident also lost her home to the fire. We were saying like should we leave and then we said nah the, as long as un, unless the winds shift we don't need to and it was like the wind said well are you testing me because then that second the wind shifted and came towards us and it it didn't take long it took from when the wind shifted until when we were like we need to go it was maybe five ten minutes. A 66-year-old grandfather sent a photo of the wildfire to his family as he was evacuating the area on Wednesday. His family hasn't heard from him since. I've seen a lot of things in my day. I'm a 
ten and a half year Air Force veteran. I've done some deployments, but I've never quite experienced anything quite like it. Um, it was it was dark as as night could be, even though it was still the daytime. The wind was so strong that it it seemed like it was raining fire. Um, everything there were ambers just flying through the streets, setting anything it could ablaze. It was it was really surreal, something out of a movie. That's you know kind of an end of day scenario, if you could call it something like that. This resident was lucky to not have lost his home, but says a lot of friends are still missing. We're scouring the regular shelter lists, trying to get for familiar names. You know, we're sending out texts, but not hearing back, hoping that this is just a battery issue or a cell phone tower issue. Uh, but it is, it's really terrifying. More than 1,000 structures have reportedly been destroyed in the historic town. What was once the capital of the Hawaiian Kingdom from 1820 to 1845 and served as a main port for the North Pacific whaling fleet is now but a mere quagmire. Homes and cars were burned to the ground, leaving nothing but a trail of destruction. Footage shows a banyan tree, a 150-year-old landmark of Lahaina, still smoldering at the base. Drone shots in Malaya show traffic in one lane where people are waiting for authorities to open the road to Lahaina. Strong winds made efforts to douse the flames by helicopters difficult. The White House announced the president had approved a disaster declaration for the state. President Biden promised to streamline requests for federal assistance. He also ordered all available Coast Guard and Air Force personnel on the island to work with the Hawaiian National Guard. Despite decreasing winds, the fires are still not fully contained. Further wind warnings for the area have been lifted. Rain showers are expected on the island later today. Costemenes, NTD News. A proposed trial date for former President Trump beginning in January 2024. That's what U.S. prosecutors requested from a federal judge yesterday. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the case centered on Trump's challenging the 2020 election results. That date would mean a trial starting just two weeks before the first votes are cast in the 2024 Republican presidential primary, a race in which Trump is the frontrunner. Special counsel Jack Smith's office says the start date partly reflects the public's interest in a speedy trial. A spokesperson for Trump said Smith and the Justice Department are blatantly playing political games. Trump himself said on his Truth Social platform, such a trial should only happen, if at all, after the election. A trial after the election would potentially give Trump the power to end his prosecution if he were to become president again. Prosecutors estimate it will take about four to six weeks to put forward the bulk of their case against Trump during the trial. Trump pleaded not guilty last week to charges over the alleged election conspiracy. Special Counsel Smith's office says it's ready to turn over most of the evidence it intends to use at trial to Trump by the end of August. Judge Tanya Chutkin is set to hold a hearing on Friday on how that evidence may be handled by Trump and his defense team. A January trial would have Trump on trial three times in the first half of 2024. He will go to trial in March over New York State charges that he falsified documents in connection with hush money payments to an adult film actress which he denies. Trump also faces a May trial from Smith in Southern Florida over the retention of classified documents after leaving office. Meanwhile, a new indictment could also come as soon as next week from Georgia, also in connection with the 2020 election. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. 
Next, we get a breakdown of some of the legal challenges former President Trump is facing. Those include cases at the federal and state level. Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, joins us live. Paul, thank you for your time today. What do we expect to see here in terms of Trump's schedule over these cases? Well, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, the government, Jack Smith, wants the trial on the January 6th case on January 2nd. Uh, he proposed that yesterday, and the uh, Trump's attorneys will fight back on that when they have to file on Monday. It's not going to happen. That is way too soon for this kind of a big case. And in a couple hours, I will be in federal court uh, for the hearing to determine what uh, Donald Trump can do with the documents that they're going to deliver in that case. The government wants a total uh, secrecy on everything. Trump is pushing back, saying, wait a minute, uh, you can have secret the grand jury stuff and all that, but other documents should be available to the public to see what's going on. So that hearing today will be very important, how that is going to handle and it's not exactly a, a gag order that they're considering, but it's kind of like a gag order. And it may be turned into a gag order if the judge doesn't like the kind of tweets that uh, Trump is doing. So uh, he's got that trial, then he's got the one in New York uh, coming up in March uh, on the hush money payments. He's got the one in May with the Mar-a-Lago documents. There's, uh, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, two other civil cases. And then we got the Georgia case uh, coming out in the next couple of weeks. So this and is Paul, really interfering with about the, yeah. Trump's J6 case. Trump's team has said that it may take three and a half years to prepare his defense because it's just such a monumental case with so many pieces of evidence involved there. So is this January date realistic? No, it's not realistic, but the judge is not going to give them three and a half years. I expect that uh, the trial date will probably be set uh, sometime uh, uh, late uh, 2024, maybe. Uh, after the election, a lot of pretrial motions that have to be going on. And what the, Jack Smith did was basically take the January 6th committee's hearings on the Hill and just cut and pasted them in an indictment. And look how long it took the January 6th committee to basically try that case. So what we're going to have is a retrial of the case and get to the evidence because Donald Trump firmly believed that, that there was irregularities and they're going to have to approve that. Uh, that he uh, that there was a number one, they're going to have to prove that he knowingly and corruptly tried to uh, stop the electoral count. And one of Trump's former attorneys said that if the case was pushed to trial too soon or prematurely, that that could factor into any appeals. Is that realistic? Well, of, of course, uh, uh, because you have the right to due process. And here you had Jack Smith have two and a half years in the Justice Department prepare this case. And they'd wait and wait and wait wait until Trump decides to run for office. And now they're saying, okay, we're gonna pull the trigger now. Well, that's not fair to say, okay, we're ready to go. And yet uh, the Trump team is just getting the, this indictment last week. So uh, this, this is unfair. I don't think it's gonna happen uh, in January. Uh, I think it'll be pushed back into maybe next summer, uh, but that would be an appeal if in fact he's forced to do it. But there's other appeal rights he's going to have. And one is that with the January 6th case, I anticipate I'll make a motion to dismiss the whole case for two reasons. One, Jack Smith is unconstitutionally appointed uh, under our Constitution. He has to be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And number two, Trump has absolute immunity because all these actions that he took during uh, the January 6th issue, he was still president of the United States. And there's a good argument that those actions were in uh, accordance with his presidential duties. And if they rule against him on that, 
that will go to the Court of Appeals. So there's going to be a lot of time taking for all these uh, uh, actions to take place. No way are they going to have this on, on January 2nd. And in the realm of immunity, President Trump would benefit from a delayed trial because he may be able to freeze some of those federal cases against him. And now when we look down in Georgia, DA Fannie Willis is set to bring about a dozen charges before a grand jury to get those to stick. That's just basically alleging that Trump and his allies were trying to overturn unlawfully the results of the state's 2020 election results. So what are the main arguments on both sides here? Yeah, well, she's going to argue that there was interference with the uh, state election procedures. Uh, she's also going to bring conspiracy and racketeering charges under state law, uh, saying that there was a conspiracy to do this. Uh, the defense is going to argue that Donald Trump had a right under the First Amendment. It's called not only the right to speak, but what we have is the petition clause. You have a right to petition your government officials whether they're federal or state, for redress of grievances. It's not up to the government to decide whether your grievances are legitimate or not. Uh, they, uh, and, and, and therefore, he thought he uh, there was some uh, fraud going on, so he had a right to tell, to, to look for the votes to see whether, based on the information he had at the time, that there was fraud going on and to do a recount. That's perfectly legal. So uh, that's the defense on, the other, uh, on Trump's side. And, and uh, Fannie Willis is going to argue that, no, no, you were trying to steal the election here. So that's going to be, and, and we understand there may be up to a dozen indictments against uh, not only Trump, but other people that were involved in the electoral process. Well, Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, thank you so much for unpacking all this for us. Thank you. Anytime. Congressman James Comer says Republicans plan to eventually subpoena members of the Biden family. Comer believes new evidence, including the testimony of Hunter Biden associate Devin Archer, directly implicates President Biden in his son's foreign business calls. Comer says the committee intends to bring in three or four other associates for transcribed interviews. The congressman released a third bank records memo this week, allegedly showing $20 million in payments to Hunter Biden and partners from foreign entities during Biden's vice presidency. Comer discussed the allegations. They were taking money from foreign nationals and they were marketing Joe Biden. Joe Biden was the brand. So that is the first associate that came in implicated Joe Biden as being the reason they were getting this money. And the money is from bad people. The money is from people who are either incarcerated in the countries where they wired the money or they are on the flee from being incarcerated. So we're concerned that the president is compromised. This money from the Bidens happened while Joe Biden was vice president, while he was flying to those countries. He flew days after he left Romania. His family started receiving wires from a corrupt Romanian foreign national days, Jake, like four days after he left, including his granddaughter. What's his granddaughter doing getting a wire from a Romanian foreign national? The White House denies any involvement of President Biden in his son's business dealings and says the GOP-led committee hasn't uncovered any proof of wrongdoing by Biden. A spokesman added that even the GOP's own witness, Devin Archer, testified that he'd never heard Biden discussing business with his son or his son's associates. And coming up, the Supreme Court is putting a hold on a deal that would shield Purdue Pharma from lawsuits over the country's opioid epidemic. 
And President Biden's giant vacuum cleaner plan spending over $1 billion to suck carbon out of the air. But opponents are skeptical. Stay tuned for that story. Welcome back. The Supreme Court halting the bankruptcy settlement of OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma. It's a deal that would shield members of the Sackler family who own the company from civil lawsuit over the opioid epidemic. Here's the story. The Supreme Court on Thursday agreed to temporarily block Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy settlement. The justices will hear the Biden administration's challenge to the legality of the deal. Purdue Pharma filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2019 to address its debts. Nearly all of it stemmed from lawsuits alleging that its pain medication, OxyContin, helped kickstart the opioid epidemic. The drug maker reached a settlement with state and local governments last year. The Sackler family, who owned the company, would receive broad immunity from lawsuits in exchange for paying up to $6 billion. The Biden administration calls the deal exceptional and unprecedented. As Solicitor General Elizabeth Pradogar put it, the plan's release absolutely, unconditionally, irrevocably, fully, finally, forever, and permanently releases the Sacklers from every conceivable type of opioid-related civil claim. At issue is whether U.S. bankruptcy law allows Purdue's restructuring to include legal protections for the Sackler family, who have not filed for personal bankruptcy. Purdue Pharma said in a statement they are disappointed in the Biden administration's challenge but added, we are confident in the legality of our nearly universally supported plan of reorganization and optimistic that the Supreme Court will agree. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the case this December. A $1.2 billion deal for giant vacuum cleaners. The Biden administration is pouring that money in new projects that aim to suck carbon out of the air. The Energy Department says the fund will go to two demonstration projects in Texas and Louisiana. They will use chemicals to capture carbon dioxide from the air and then store it underground or use it in industrial materials like cement. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said the initiative will remove more than 2 million tons of carbon dioxide annually, but critics call the approach extravagant because of the high cost of current air capture technology and the process itself consumes large amounts of energy. Rising incidents of violent crime in one northern California city are affecting quality of life and causing some to flee. To get more details, let's go to NTD's Jack Bradley. Good morning, Evelyn. Increasingly more residents in Oakland, California, are complaining of a surge of violence and crime. There's been a rise in instances of robberies, carjackings, and home invasions, even targeting elderly residents. To dive into this more, I spoke with Oakland Councilmember Dan Kalb, who said there's hundreds of people showing up to public safety meetings to voice their concerns. Over the past several months, really more accurately over the past few years, uh, two or three years, um, certain types of crime, in some cases violent crime, has gone up in about a dozen different neighborhoods throughout the city of Oakland. And people are, are understandably uh, full of fear, consternation, you know, one, be wondering what, what's going on. People are afraid that sometimes, you know, you know, walk on a certain street at, late at night or during the day even, or go out by themselves. Uh, not most people, but enough people where you know it's a serious problem. Uh, and people are witnessing some of these, some of these crimes 
and uh, and they're they're scary. It's not just the robbery, the burglary; it's the violent assaults that are happening uh, during some of these robberies. Uh, enough to make people rightfully fearful and concerned. Councilmember Cobb said there has been difficulty recruiting police officers as there's fewer people applying. Cobb has also said this has contributed to staffing shortages. On top of that. We've seen difficulty in the city's 911 dispatch systems. Um, we've had our, some, some horrendous complaints that people are on, are on hold for 5, 10, 15 minutes or more when they call 911. I mean, imagine if someone has a heart attack and you call 911 and you're on hold for 10 minutes. That, that is completely unacceptable. Following along closely with the situation in Oakland is Epic Times reporter Travis Gilmore. So there's there's a lot of property theft crime. There's a, a lot of car break-ins are at just at, at levels that people tell me are unbelievable that if, they, if anything is left in their vehicle, it's going to be stolen. I've been told that almost every retail establishment has either been hit with theft or with some sort of property crime. Home invasions, break-ins have become normal. The one that's shocking that the, the, the people tell me is the most shocking is carjackings and that authorities say some of these carjackings are occurring and then the perpetrators are using these vehicles to commit other crimes, making it more difficult to trace them. It's really changed. I've had many single single family, single women that I've talked to that tell me when they go to work, they're nervous going to work, they're nervous getting groceries. It's, it's put an aspect of fear in their life that they've never had before. The NAACP even sent a letter to city officials saying recently that it's um, that there's a crime surge and uh, it's it's the the city officials are responsible and the narrative of um, anti-police rhetoric is is responsible for that too are we seeing a shift in in uh, in narrative here and as for this letter were you surprised when you saw this I was surprised when I saw this especially from where it originated now we have community leaders that are recognizing the criminal element and the impact that it has on the community and the impact that some of these narratives in the past in terms of defund the police and criminal justice reform, now seeing the consequences of some of these actions, they're really turning a corner. And it's th the question now is, is this the beginning of a new ideology where we see the understanding that community and police need to come together, that this is an, an aspect of community safety that is a united effort, not one where it's one side against the other. Police advise when possible people install burglar bars on their windows and doors and utilize security measures to help stop break-ins like installing cameras. They also recommend concealing money and your cell phone when in public and not leaving anything of value in the car when parked in the city. Evelyn, back to you. More coverage still to come. Secretary of State Antony Blinken issues a stern warning to the junta in Niger and the West African bloc activates troops. And Ecuador captures several Colombian nationals allegedly tied to the assassination of the, a presidential candidate. That's after the break. Good to have you back. The U.S. and ECOWAS are warning the Niger junta about consequences stemming from their ousting of elected President Bazoum. The Economic Community of West African States has activated a standby force. This after the junta in Niger ignored an August 6th deadline to stand down. Following a meeting in Niger Nigeria on Thursday, ECOWAS pledged to enforce sanctions, travel bans and asset freezes on those preventing the return to power of democratically elected President Bazoum. Secretary of State's 
uh, Blinken said that the United States will hold the junta accountable for the safety of Bazoum, his family, and detained members of the government. There are no specific plans yet for the use of the standby force. From Africa to South America, officials in Ecuador have made arrests in connection with the assassination of presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio. The arrests underscore the struggle Ecuador is having with drug cartels. After the shocking daylight assassination of the candidate, officials announced the arrest of six Colombians. The men were located hiding in a house in Quito. Police found automatic weapons, ammunition, grenades and stolen vehicles. The assassination highlights the challenges Ecuador faces after becoming a battlefield for drug smuggling. Future leaders there must face threats from drug cartels. They use Ecuador's 400 miles of coastline in their drug smuggling operations. And now some short headlines from around the world. NATO member Poland announces plans to send 10,000 additional troops to its border with Belarus, a key Russian ally. Moscow and Minsk, which are bound by their own defense treaty, both pledge to respond. The buildup follows the recent arrival to Belarus of fighters from Russia's Wagner Group. Iran has moved five Iranian-Americans from prison to house arrest in exchange for billions of dollars frozen in South Korea. U.S. and Iranian officials say it's part of a tentative deal that could eventually lead to the full release of the Americans. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called it the beginning of the end to their nightmare. Police in Northern Ireland are aware of a claim that terrorist groups are in possession of the personal details of almost 11,000 officers and staff following a major data breach. Officers in the region are under threat from terrorism, with the current assessed level of threat at severe, meaning an attack is highly likely. A rocket carrying a lunar landing craft blasted off on Russia's first moon mission in nearly 50 years. Russia is racing to land on the moon's south pole ahead of India. The region is believed to hold pockets of water ice, which could be used for fuel, oxygen and drinking water. And coming up, a shocking report on how the IRS lost track of millions of sensitive tax records of Americans. And the White House has requested billions of dollars in supplemental funds. Will it set off a heated debate in Congress? That story and more after the break. Welcome back. $40 billion. That's how much the White House is asking for. Yesterday's request will likely create some disagreements in Congress. About half the money is earmarked for defense aid and humanitarian relief in Ukraine. That includes funding for equipment, military and intelligence support. Other funds will be allocated to replenish U.S. disaster relief, beef up border security and slow the flow of fentanyl into the U.S. The funding request is considered supplementary and does not fall under the the spending cap Congress agreed on. It's part of a package Congress must approve in September to keep the government open. However, a political divide in Ukraine funding is growing. The spending debate is expected to be contentious when Congress returns to session. 
at the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, estimates the U.S. government borrowed around $1.6 trillion in 10 months. They now expect the federal deficit this year to hit $1.7 trillion, and that would be the largest on record. So why does national debt matter? Let's bring in Thomas Hogan, senior research faculty member at the American Institute for Economic Research. Good morning, Thomas. So $32 trillion right now and starting to approach $33 trillion national debt. First of all, how big is that debt for a government? Uh, it's pretty big. I mean, the United States has one of the larger debt to GDP ratios. That is, the amount of our debt is much larger than the size of our economy. You know, a lot of times uh, for countries, you worry when the debt gets to be more than 100% of the economy and we're at around 150%. And so that means it's going to be pretty difficult for us to, you know, pay all of that off. Mm. And in light of that, this year, I just mentioned the 1.6 trillion in 10 months, that's double from last year as well. So where is all this money going? Yeah, that's right. I mean, every year the U.S. government spends more money than it brings in in tax revenues, and that means we have to borrow a lot, uh, as you mentioned, $1.6 trillion in the recent period. And so that's higher than, than previous deficits for a couple of reasons. One is we, we just didn't happen to have as much revenue, as much tax revenue that came in this year. But it's also from increased spending in a number of areas. Um, due to the inflation that we've had in recent years, mandatory spending programs like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid have all, all gone up. Um, the amount that we're paying in interest on the debt has gone up because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. And then also there have just been increases in other regular spending programs, things like the Biden administration's uh, bailout of student loans, which means that those loans are now going to be paid by U.S. taxpayers rather than the people that borrowed the money. And so all those things are, are drivers right now of the increased deficit. Right. Now, I want to go back really quick to the point that you made that it will be, become very difficult to pay off that debt. What risk is, exactly are we running there? Because we can't really look at it from, from the same standpoint, the, the way we look at household debt, right? Yeah, that's right. So the, you know, the, the U.S. government um, owes a pretty substantial debt that if this were your household, you might be, you might be worried about that. Um, and I used to joke, I used to teach finance and tell the students that, you know, U.S. De government debt is considered risk free. And I would say, look, if, if you ever worry about the U.S. government not paying its bills, you've got a bigger problem than the return on your portfolio. But it turns out now we actually do have to worry about the government paying its bills. The, our debt was recently downgraded by one of the major credit agencies because they worry that the U.S. just might not have the revenue in the future to pay off this ever-growing debt. You know, this debt is, is projected to continue to increase. The Congressional Budget Office says that it is unsustainable. And so at some point, we're going to have to cut the spending. That's really the only way that we're going to be able to pay off this debt. And so we hope that there will be some kind of reform, but it just isn't politically viable right now. Right. I just want to round up things really quick. We have a couple more seconds. How does that translate? How will that affect the individual here, Americans? How will that affect us? Yeah, it just means that we're going to have to probably pay higher taxes. Um, and at some point, you have the political will to actually do something in Washington to slow down this, this spending because it's just unsustainable. All right. Thank you for bringing things to the point here. Thomas Hogan, I appreciate it. Thanks. And a shocking report on how the IRS handles old tax records. A government watchdog finds that the tax agency has lost track of millions of sensitive tax records on, of Americans. 
The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration issued the report earlier this week. It says the IRS lost track of up to 2,000 microfilm cartridges. They contain roughly 19 million sensitive business and individual tax records of Americans. The report concludes that the IRS is not in compliance with records management requirements. The lost records could be used by criminals to commit identif identify theft and tax fraud. In light of the findings, the watchdog recommended the IRS carry out a detailed inventory of all microfirm cartridges on hand. In a letter responding to the report, the tax agency blamed long-term underfunding and staff attrition to the problems. Some business news here. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported a 3.2% increase in consumer prices. This is the first rise after 12 straight months of decline. What does the inflation figure mean for your life? Here to discuss this is Entity Business host Don Ma. Thanks for joining us, Don. Thank you, Kevin. Looking good this morning. So inflation is now at 3.2%. Where are consumers still feeling the squeeze? Well, so... House, housing costs remain stubborn. It's still up 7.7% from one year ago. And as well, energy and food also saw slight upticks from June to July. Um, grocery prices ticked up 0.3% in July, and it was driven largely by rising beef prices. Now, <clears throat> from June to July, the price of uncooked beef roasts spiked 6.5%. Uh, this is all according to data released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And uncooked beef steaks prices rose 2.3%. Uncooked ground beef rose 1.5%. Altogether, beef and veal got 2.4% more expensive last month. Eggs, chicken, and milk, though, a little bit less. And as well, for those who would like to travel, airline fares and used cars and trucks were among other areas that saw decreases. And here's something for those that go out to eat a lot. You might want to hear this. In, in the month of July, many prices rose uh, just a tiny bit, just 0.2%. But over the course of the year, many prices went up 7.1%. Dining restaurants raised prices about 5.8% for the year, while fast food and fast casual chains increased menu prices by 7.1%. Oh, more price, higher prices for food and housing. That is a concern. Those are our staples there. So with inflation having come down significantly from its peak last year, why haven't we seen prices come down more? That's a great question, Kevin. Here's the thing. What inflation means is the rate of increase of prices. And the key word here really is increase. So, right, inflation has come down dramatically, but what that really means is that Prices are increasing at a slower speed. That's all that means. It doesn't mean prices are coming down. It still means prices are going up. Uh, they're still getting more expensive, but it's just getting more expensive at a slower speed. So if inflation is at 0%, hypothetically, you still won't have cheaper prices. I see what you mean. Only in a state of deflation are we going to actually start to see these prices come down. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, that okay. is correct. So do you have any other news updates for us, Don? So adding to that report, uh, another report shows that more Americans are failing to pay off their credit cards and car loans. New credit card payment lapses rose 0.7% between the first and second quarter. For recent auto delinquencies, that increase is 4.4%. These figures suggest that Americans are struggling to keep up with high prices. 
And as well, a major move by Amazon. The e-commerce giant is shelving dozens of private clothing, clothing brands um, that's in a broader effort to cut costs and address antitrust scrutiny. The Wall Street Journal first report, reported the news. Um, the report says 27 of its 30 in-house label clothing brands are getting scrapped. Only Amazon Essentials, Amazon Collection, and Amazon Aware will remain. And that's all for me this morning. Well, I know a lot of people shop on Amazon, so thank you, Don, host of NTD Business, for all of your great updates. Thank you, Kevin. And still to come, suicide rates reached a record high last year, according to the latest CDC report. Get that story after the break. Welcome back. Nearly 50,000 suicides in 2022. A new CDC report released yesterday says suicide rates reached a record high last year. The new numbers show a 2.6% increase last year and a 10% increase over the last couple of years. A CNN survey says 9 out of 10 adults in the U.S. think the country is experiencing a mental health crisis. The CDC's chief medical officer said many people still believe that asking for help is a sign of weakness. Last month marked the one-year anniversary of the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, yet more than 80% of adults were either unfamiliar with or had never heard of it, according to a recent poll. So if you know someone who is struggling or if you need help, call 988. And talking about mental health, we reported recently that especially young women are experiencing extreme sadness. So what should women do to be healthier? Valerie Huber founded the Institute for Women's Health, so she's working on this issue day in and day out. She emphasizes that health requires a holistic approach, and according to her, the spiritual aspect is often neglected. What's spiritual health and why is it important? I spoke to her. This can't be something that is forced upon a person, can't be something that they just wake up and say, today I'm going to focus on my spiritual health. It has to be a, a genuine relation to uh, whatever religion that they um, attach to and that it becomes a meaningful part of their life. A part of this, of course, is the need also to have the religious freedom to practice one's faith. but. The, the reality is that all four of those elements to optimal health, physical, mental, social, and religious or spiritual health are both relevant and they're in, interdependent. And, and oftentimes the research shows that health is compromised if even one of those elements is missing. So we need to take a look at, at the more than thousand uh, research studies on spiritual health and start implementing it. What exactly are the changes that you see when somebody is paying more attention to their spiritual health? Well, I think we're only beginning the conversation. As I mentioned a moment ago, there are more than a thousand studies that make that linkage between uh, how we define health and thriving and the importance of, of a strong spiritual health. Let me give you just a couple of examples from that large body of research. We know that here in the United States, about one in five women say that they have some kind of a mental health condition. Those who have active spiritual levels, and, and this includes spiritual community as well, have lower levels of stress, improved mental health, decreased 
risk of suicide. Overall, the research shows that those with spiritual health um, live longer. They're more resilient to bounce back from setbacks, whether they are um, physical setbacks, whether they're emotional setbacks, whether they're social setbacks. We also know that some of the precursors to physical conditions begin much earlier in the kind of risk behaviors that an individual participates in. Those with active and and uh, active spiritual lives resulting in, in that, that tenant of spiritual health are less likely to engage in risk behaviors that are precursors to health conditions. As an example, heart disease is the leading cause of death for, for women here in the United States, and actually it's, it's significant around the world. But an active religious practice can reduce those risk factors that cause fatal heart attacks. Knowing that recent reports, you know, they show that mental health in young women is in serious decline these days. Do you have any concrete tips on what kind of things or routines should should a young woman incorporate in daily life so that to make her feel better? Well, I think I think that some of the research that's coming out as a result of the COVID pandemic has shown us that um, a lack of community is very detrimental on on our mental health and that the lack of community and the the decrease in mental health also has consequences on on physical health and, and using just COVID again as an example um, those who had were isolated were much more likely to develop mental conditions so it works both ways and and even uh, things like uh, Alzheimer's and and physical conditions that perhaps weren't as serious were accelerated as a as a result of not having that social interaction so I think that's really important but who you have a social interaction with is also important because if uh, you need to have others who are emotionally healthy around you and and have not only good mentors good friends um, because having a sense of purpose in one's life and something larger than oneself is super important not only to mental health but overall longevity as well mm. thank you so much for those insights fascinating thank you valerie huber i appreciate it thank you so much for having me I'm really glad that she's bringing up the importance of spiritual health because it's something that can bring peace of mind, which reduces stress, and also it's a journey to bring more meaning into someone's life. All right, yeah, it sounds, it's great that you can relate to that. And I think, you know, my thought is, it sounds like everybody, because spirituality is something so personal, so it, it seems like it's very individual, right? Like everybody has to figure out for themselves what exactly that means for them. Yes, they have to do their own soul searching, as some may put it, and it's, it's, it's something that applies to a wide variety of people. Right. And still to come, military and contract working dogs prove themselves in combat. Now, a nonprofit called Mission Canine Rescue helps connect retired dogs with their former handlers and other adopters. Get that story in just a moment.
Good to have you back, everyone. Military and contract working dogs have proven themselves in combat for millennia. From sniffing out explosives to search and rescue, they've saved countless lives. Entity's Andrew Thomas has a story on a mission to reconnect dogs with their handlers and find loving homes for retired canines. Army veteran Mark Maddox was looking for a dog, but he also wanted to help a fellow veteran. After a friend of his attended a charity event, she urged him to get in touch with the keynote speaker, Kristen Maurer. Maurer is the co-founder and president of Mission Canine Rescue, a nonprofit that rescues retired military and contract working dogs. The bond with these dogs is incredible. Uh, I think it's part of what makes them a working dog is the ability to bond with a handler. And they are so happy to be in a home and to be able to be with somebody. After Maddox spoke with her about the organization, he applied and was approved to adopt. Now he shares his home with two Czech German Shepherds named Aster and Tiger. They're like cling stage five clingers, as the movie says. Um, they want to be with you all the time. And, and you can't help but give back. When they love you that much, you can't help but love them back. Mission K-9 was never a planned endeavor. Maurer had been a private investigator and was working with law enforcement and drug detection dogs. After picking up a working dog coming from Kuwait, she learned about the plight retired military dogs face. Maurer was introduced to Louisa Kastner, a retired Army veterinarian technician. Together with co-founder Bob Bryant, Mission Canine Rescue was born. Our feeling is, is that these dogs were drafted. They didn't. They weren't asked to do the job that they do. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it's really important and it's an honor to give back to them because their whole life has been a service to humanity. Retired military and contract working dogs face an array of challenges. Most canines have been exposed to gunfire and suffer from some level of PTSD. Others have joint problems from years of service. Some even develop cancer due to exposure from explosives and other substances. So military dogs and also contract working dogs, which are trained the same, they do the same job as military dogs, they're just owned privately. Uh, these dogs train like athletes all their lives. Retired working dogs without a handler are placed in loving homes after a comprehensive application process. When it's possible, Mission Canine Rescue reconnects former handlers with the dogs they served with. The reunions are a special moment for everyone. When we bring a dog that hasn't seen a handler in two or three years, and they sniff around and they don't know who that person is for a minute, and then it clicks. And you see that dog get happy, animated, they're jumping, they're wagging their tail, they're rubbing on the handler. Mission Canine Rescue has reunited over 650 handlers and their dogs. About the same number have been adopted. To learn about the application process or donate, visit missioncaninerescue.org. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. That's some big compassion for man's best friend. Yeah, some great images, but that's all for today. For this week, in fact, we are coming back Monday. See you then. I'm Evelyn Lee. Have a nice weekend. I'm Kevin Hogan.